Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It was a time for starting over. The death of Mother Lovebone singer Andrew Wood in March of 1990 had dashed the destiny of Seattle's most likely rock stars. In the wake of that tragedy, bassist Jeff Ament and guitarist Stone Gossard started working on a tribute to their late singer with a murderer's row of collaborators, including Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and guitarist Mike McCready. They crafted an album for A&M Records with new songs written in Wood's honor and newly finished works in progress from the Mother Lovebone backlot. They dubbed their project Temple of the Dog after one of Wood's lyrics. While the album was coming together, Ament, Gossard, and McCready were busy forming a new band with some San Diego surfer dude named Eddie Vedder on vocals. Vedder was literally the new kid in town, but while he was hanging around with his new bandmates, he ended up making a searing contribution to Temple of the Dog, sharing lead vocals with Chris Cornell on the disconsolate ballad Hunger Strike. The Rocket editor and writer Charles Cross. That album might be the purest Seattle album of any, partially because the people were on it, partially because it wasn't released necessarily to be commercial. And there's also a rawness in the emotion of the songs on that album. Every other quote-unquote grunge record has more people thinking about what they're doing. Whereas with Hunger Strike, it was just a pure reaction. Photographer Karen Mason Blair. What a heartfelt tribute. You know, Andrew and Chris were roommates, and I mean, they loved it that level. That is one of the best albums. I mean, Say Hello to Heaven, that's a love letter. And Andrew went to heaven. <laughs> There's no getting out of that. And, you know, and Chris Cornell and him are singing today. <laughs> I guarantee it. Label executive Michael Goldstone had signed Mother Love Bone to Polygram. I'd heard a couple of those songs early days before Chris's vocals were on them. I didn't hear some of the tracks and it turned into this sort of experience that they all had together. And I thought it was incredibly remarkable and touching for them to bring Ed in to sing Hunger Strike and for that to be the song that was able to sort of help everybody move forward. Hunger Strike was such an impactful and powerful moment.
But when the album was released in April of 91, the Seattle invasion was still in the future, and Temple of the Dog pretty much tanked. Soundgarden didn't sit around fretting over it. They were too busy prepping for stardom by recording Bad Motorfinger. And right around the same time, that new band, with the guy from California, well, they started working on an album of their own. You are listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. The story of the scene that defined rock in the 90s. Back before Ament, Gossard, and McCready even started looking for a singer, they had reached out to Jack Irons, and they asked him to be their drummer for their new band, which was originally named Mookie Blaylock, after the NBA player. Michael Goldstone signed the band to Epic Records. The idea came from Jeff and Stone to get to Jack Irons as a potential drummer. And Jack came back and did not join at that time, chose not to join. And somehow the conversation manifested itself into, should probably meet my friend Ed, he's a security guard, he's really talented. And so Jack connected Ed to, to Stone and Jeff. They sent them three songs he sang over them. I think it was Alive Once and Footsteps. You know, it came together in a really organic way from musician to musician is really the best aspect of that. And they, and they ran with it and recorded and did a show. And, you know, it was really their dialogue with Jack that, you know, that opened that door up for Ed. Karen Mason Blair. I ended up being the only photographer that took photos of the first Pearl Jam concert. <laughs> so three days before, Jeff Ament calls me on the phone. He's like, Karen, I got a new band. We're playing in three days of the off-ramp. You should come out. So I called a couple of my friends. And so <laughs> we get down there and we're like, okay. But everyone's really somber, right? Because it's like everybody in that crowd knows Mother Love Bone, right? And you're thinking to yourself, I would never want to fill the shoes of Andrew Wood. So you're just like, oh, please, dear God, don't let this singer suck because you don't want to tell your brokenhearted friend, oh, I don't like your new singer at all, you know? And so you're like, oh my gosh. And then you're standing there and out comes Eddie Vedder. And you're like, fuck, that guy can sing. And then he just keeps going and going and going and you hear black and you hear once and you, you know, you hear alive and you're just like, like, you're mind-blown. You're mind-blown. KISWDJ, Kathy Faulkner. December of 1990 at the Moore Theater, Allison Chains was headlining. It was a show that KISW was, was putting on with the band, and Mookie Blaylock opened, and it was one of the few performances of Temple of the Dog. I think there's, like, five Seattle performances, and that was one of them. And Eddie came out on stage, and they they played a couple of their songs, but Eddie was the meek Eddie. And we're like, who is this guy? And he had a suit coat that the sleeves went out past his fingers, probably like six inches. It just enveloped him, and so he looked smaller. But then, by the end of the performance, when Chris came out and they performed a, I think they performed Hunger Strike, if I'm not mistaken, then it was Eddie and Chris wrestling at the end of the song during the guitar solo, and the dynamic from this guy being swallowed by his suit coat to climbing all over Chris Cornell at the end of the performance, it's like, wow. Who's this? <laughs> Debbie Lippitz became Pearl Jam's radio promoter for Epic Records. Combine every great rock band 
that's ever meant anything to you, and then pretend you're a fly on the wall in their practice space, watching friends play with each other. And then add the most beautiful, thoughtful, tortured, tormented lead singer, weaving it all together. And they're storytellers. They're storytellers. To this day, I will pay full retail to see this band anytime I can, because no two shows are alike, and I never want the concert to end. Kathy Faulkner was a fly on the wall for Pearl Jam's first sessions. I would go to London Bridge late at night and listen to the recording process of 10. With Stone and Jeff, you can still hear Mother Love Bone in the music. But the last thing that I think any of us wanted was Mother Love Bone 2. So a real curiosity on my part and a real excitement that these guys from Green River malfunction onto Mother Love Bone and, and now Mookie Blaylock becoming Pearl Jam, that they get to go forward and they get to, they get to continue making music, hearing the tracks in the studio. There was no question that this was a solid record from note one to the last note. I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen. It was amazing. Meanwhile, Soundgarden was busy refining their neo-metal roar into something more lacerating than ever on Bad Motorfinger. On future classics like Rusty Cage, which would eventually be covered by none other than Johnny Cash, and Outshined, their sonic assault was still crushingly heavy, but newly laser-focused. Soon, the whole world would start picking up on what Seattleites had been loving about the band for years. Candlebox singer Kevin Martin saw Soundgarden's original trio lineup when Cornell was singing from behind the drums. Chris Cornell playing drums, they were a three-piece and he's wailing like a banshee. That was mind-blowing. I had never experienced anybody with that kind of conviction. And certainly Kim Thale as well as a guitar player. And then Chris decides, oh, I'm just gonna get up front and play guitar and sing and take my shirt off and wear duct tape shorts. That takes a certain, God, you get just some balls, man. I mean, some real balls. And it's really, it's faith in yourself and not giving a fuck. Soundgarden was, you know, candy to my ears. I mean, it was like fucking magic. CZ Records owner and Skinyard member Daniel House. You know, even as early as 85 and 86, for a great number of us, you know, myself included, we kind of all felt like Soundgarden were probably the band best poised to become a huge big deal. There was something so amazing about that band, not just musically, but, you know, Chris, there, there were no other front men in Seattle in that scene at the time like there was with Chris. His voice was just like, you know, it was something otherworldly. He was gorgeous. Like the only male front man that half the straight men in town sort of had some kind of, you know, man crush on. He was stunning. And he was a performer and he had an amazing voice and he could play and the band was amazing. Seattle DJ Mark Iverson. Oh, heavy. They were heavy. You know, Chris Cornell was not shy about taking off his shirt. Um, there was a lot of, I would say, sexual attraction in there. And they were tight. Matt Cameron's drumming was amazing. Hiro Yamamoto, when he was in the band, would do these huge moves with his fingers, moving his finger from the pegs of the bass all the way up the fretboard with just like... They were just tight. And Chris Cornell was you know, all over the place and his wail, his voice was wonderful. And um, Kim Thale was fun to watch and he had a lot of unique guitar playing. Yeah, they were highly energetic. Kathy Faulkner. That was your hard rock wall of sound. 
maybe like an amalgamation of the hard rock of the Sabbath and the guitar that only Kim Thale can do. It was just a wall of sound coming at you relentlessly. During this time, Nirvana was doing some maturing of their own. The artistic progress from Bleach to Nevermind was off the charts. Kurt had just started showing his passion for pop-savvy hooks. By the time they left the cozy confines of Seattle and Sub Pop behind to make Nevermind at LA's legendary Sound City for David Geffen's DGC Records, they reached a whole new level of songcraft, framed to perfection by Butch Vig's production. Kathy Fennessy. So many of the people who got into the band at the time of Nevermind, I don't think they would have been as enthusiastic about the band if they remained that hard and that loud and that uncompromising. And I'm not implying that, that Nirvana kind of softened things on Nevermind for commercial reasons. I think there were a lot of personal reasons they wanted to do some songs that were softer or quieter. I think that was just their personal taste, but it also made them much bigger than they would have been otherwise. Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. It was mind-blowing in so many ways. Great songwriting, great players, you know? Like, Nova Selleck is one of the best bass players, one of the best melodic bass players. Grohl, killer punk rock and roll drummer. And Kurt, you know, the guitar lines and his unusual songwriting. But so, I mean, it was so down, it was like so pop, but so, so brutal and great. I just really loved that record. Hammerbox singer Carrie Ockrey. The catchiness of those songs, you heard instantly. Within the style, the song structure was so catchy. I was like, you knew instantly it was going to be huge. I was like, what the hell is that? It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Between Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Nirvana, the albums that would take the Seattle sound from alt-underground to absolutely in-your-face were being loaded in the canon. But the scene could never have survived, much less thrived, without the three R's, the holy Seattle trinity of The Rocket, radio, and record stores. The Rocket had been Seattle's source for music news since 1979. Writer Charles Cross started editing the paper in 1986. The concept was write about music in Seattle, either bands coming to town or bands that were from Seattle. But we struggled at times because bands would come in that were huge, that many of the readers of The Rocket wanted to read about, and then you'd have The U-Men or Green River. Bands that, you know, 20 people wanted to see or read about. By the late 80s, there's more to write about locally. So the shift of bands that are on the cover from national to local begins the first few years of The Rocket is like 90% national. Um, By the mid 80s, it's 50%. And by the early 90s, it's essentially 90% local bands. And what happened is local bands became the national bands. Nirvana advertised three times looking for drummers in The Rocket. You know, every band that we're naming here read the musician classifieds looking for other members, uh, advertised in the paper, found their gear. We were the local source. Uh, And when I got to look through Kurt Cobain's personal effects to see the stories he saved from The Rocket that he paid a quarter for, it was vindication. Yeah, everybody read The Rocket. Carrie Ockrey. 
when I decided like, oh, I'm going to go try and be in a band, like the only thing I thought to do was like, go look in the back of the rocket. The only ad that I responded to was the one that Dave and James from Hammerbox or what became Hammerbox had put in there. Yeah, that was such a huge staple in most people's lives. If you didn't get mentioned in the rocket, you didn't exist. I don't want to overstate that, but you simply, you weren't going to find an audience. You weren't going to, um, you know, have any capacity to build a following. And that's true of uh, almost every band. So we were the Bible. Daniel House. The release of the rocket every month became a very, very critical piece of all of our experiences. And of course, anybody who had a record label or anybody who was a band, it was always trying to get somebody at the Rocket to, you know, put a piece out on us or on our band. The ultimate coup would be to actually be on the cover of the Rocket. To get on the cover of the Rocket in Seattle was like being on the cover of Rolling Stone nationally. The Rocket was huge, very important. And of course, all the show listings because we didn't have the Internet. So it was really a Bible in that sense. The Rocket was our musical Bible. Kudos to Charles Cross and, and everybody on the Rocket staff. Huge, absolutely huge. Irreplaceable. <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> Not that we couldn't have done it without them, but they were our historians. Promoter Jeff Trisler. I really miss that paper. You know, the Rocket was a great source to kind of see what's going on, what's new, what's bubbling up. Um, for a lot of these unknown bands to get some press and, and get discovered even if it was a small number of people that discovered him, it was still a place to start. Mark Iverson. I would say it was huge. They wrote about the local bands. They reviewed the local bands. They were the one place you could go to learn about where all the shows were. You know, this was pre-internet, of course. So all the listings for the Vogue and the Central and Squid Row and the Off-Ramp, Rock Candy, they were all in the back. And so we would all scan those. That was a way for us to learn about what was going on and plan our calendar for the month. Debbie Livitz. The most credible rock zine in the Pacific Northwest. It was more influential than any of the daily papers. Charles Cross, he was a, a star in his own right. And my bands love the rocket. I miss it. On the radio side, there was an underground-to-mainstream layup that mirrored the move from indies like CZ and Sub Pop to the major labels. KCMU, the station of the University of Washington, was the voice of the underground. For a long while, it was local bands' only hope of hitting the airwaves. All the Seattle bands who were up and coming were almost always put into heavy rotation. When things started to go major label, KISW started to pick things up, and the end, 107.7, but in the early days, KCMU was just was the only outlet. And it was fun because you'd get demos. And so we had a Nirvana song before they ever put anything out. We had Mudhoney's Touch Me, I'm Sick with the F-bomb edited out so we could play that. Uh, I remember Matt Cameron of Soundgarden submitted a solo song, which was a Jimi Hendrix cover. I'm sure that never saw the light of day anywhere else after that. So through these demos that were submitted to KCMU, we were able to play a lot of really uh, small-time stuff that may not have even been picked up by a local indie label quite yet. I definitely added a lot of grunge records to our rotation, and there was, there was a lot of enthusiasm at the station. So something like Soundgarden might end up in heavy because a lot of people were excited about, you know, FOP or something like that. Some of the bands that had a more AOR sound, uh, hard rock sound, we didn't 
play as much, which might have disappointed some listeners. We really didn't play a lot of Pearl Jam, for instance. They didn't quite take off the same way at our station that they did at some of the local AOR stations. Not that not that anybody hated them, but they were a little more commercial than some of what we were playing. Like Mud Honey fit in perfectly, for instance. When I was in school in Hammerbox, the other things that were really strong were like the college radio, KCMU, which is now KXP, right? KCMU was still on the UW campus like tiny little radio station room that you would go into. I remember working at my restaurant job, like back in the kitchen and they'd have KCMU on and like one of our songs came on. It was like, you know, like, oh my God, like that was like the top. It served a number of roles. I mean, the primary one was playing unheard music for its audience and bringing music that people would not normally discover to them. I feel confident that Nirvana was played on KCMU for the first time, Mud Honey for the first time, um, The Walkabouts probably for the first time. For Soundgarden, I can say that they put out a single before Screaming Life, and that almost certainly got played on KCMU before it was played anywhere else. We were in on the ground floor and playing all the cassette tapes and all the singles and everything that we thought was, was worth playing, no matter what the format, no matter what the label After you heard it on the radio, you ran to the record store. The real indie record hubs like Cellophane Square and Easy Street fostered a real sense of community, going above and beyond the call of duty to help local labels and bands. The Milestone 1988 compilation Sub Pop 200, which included Soundgarden, Green River, Screaming Trees, and Nirvana, was a perfect example. During her time as a KCMU DJ, Kathy Fennessy also worked at Cellophane Square. When Cellophane Square stepped in to seal Sub Pop 200, that was the only option they had in town. So the very first copies of Sub Pop 200 were sealed, you know, in the back room of the University District um, Cellophane Square. I guess they really had nowhere else to go. So we, we stepped in. Easy Street owner Matt Vaughn. It goes back to that slacker Gen X generation in that we were anti-establishment. We felt like we needed to stake out our own claim. We were willing to take the risks. Oh, Easy Street. I'm telling you, that's the best record store in the country. In 95, when the Mariners went to the playoffs, you know, you find that out at a very last minute, right? So he was a Ticketmaster location. This is a small record store that all of a sudden has to deal with thousands of people trying to buy tickets for the Mariners. And Eddie Vedder lived in the neighborhood, and he came in and saw Matt Vaughn kind of struggling. There wasn't enough help, and he ran the cash register. When a Pearl Jam album came out, Pearl Jam on their own would go there and give every store employee a record. It's just wonderful because it's all about relationships, and it's all about good people doing good things. It's a treasure. Easy Street is a treasure. I remember Scott McCoy worked there for a while. And, you know, I liked the Young Fresh Fellows at the time. And so it was, it was always fun to buy a record from him because it was buying a record from someone who I saw up on stage, which was cool. And he was nice. And he would be happy to talk about whatever it is you were buying. He was great. And, and then there was another place that I started to go to when I was, after I graduated from college, which was in 1990, called Fallout Records on Capitol Hill. 
I believe Bruce Pavitt was involved in starting that. And that was a smaller store, started out as a skateboard store with music, and then evolved more to music and alternative comics. I would always make a weekly run to Fallout and buy what I could. As a homegrown music community, the Seattle scene was something fans and musicians alike felt invested in. It was also one of the more inclusive, female-friendly rock scenes around, even from the start. Up until the 1990s, the biggest band ever to break from Seattle was Heart, and that was in the less-than-enlightened 1970s. Debbie Lippitz started working with Heart for Epic Records in 1979. They were badass women. Even though we wanted them, I'm sure, from a marketing standpoint, to be sex symbols, they didn't need to be. You just saw what incredible writers they were, what a great guitar player Nancy really became. And, I mean, that voice. It didn't almost matter that they were extremely sexy. They were respected. They were respected for their, just for their talent. Not long after that, Duff McKagan played drums in an early lineup of the female-fronted Fastbacks. Seattle was all the way up in the corner and very open. I know the punk scene in Seattle, the doors were just wide open to whoever, whoever was on stage playing in the band, they were cool. Men, women, gay, straight, whatever. Black, white, didn't matter. You know, one of the first bands I played in had two girls. They weren't women yet. <laughs> two girls in the band. And that was just super normal. The Northwest has always been a place that's a little more open not just about music, like politics, everything. A lot of our friends all had female-fronted bands or were all female, right? Like, and the guys that we were around were like, yeah. Like, it wasn't a conversation. You know, Dave and James picked a woman to front their band. That wasn't my choice. They picked me. They could have picked a man. My gender was not a topic. How good I was, was mattered more. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I think same with like Seven Year Bitch and the Gits. Like, they're serious gals who also were just badass. You know what I mean? Like they knew what they wanted and they were going to go make music. You know, Mia's voice was amazing, you know, and soulful and all of that. And those men could recognize that. And there were a lot of women involved behind the scenes. I'm thinking like the music directors at KCMU were almost always female. And of course, women booking shows. And there were plenty of women involved in playing music, but I'm not sure why they didn't break out in the same way. But, you know, there were some of the other artists like Hart that came out of this area as well and maybe might not have developed in quite the same way if they'd come from a different community. Like the fact that Hart was two women and they were a hard rock band, that's still pretty unique, especially for that time. I think there was probably a much bigger openness to women playing rock in Seattle. But even then, that said, you know, rock and roll pretty much always has been a boys club. I think that they've always still had to kind of fight harder to to find their place and to sort of establish themselves in a in a primarily male dominated world. But I do think that the Pacific Northwest in general is probably a little more a little more evolved, or at least was then, in terms of their openness to women. I mean, it's not just reflected in Seattle, but you know, when you think of the whole riot girl scene that kind of started down in Olympia. I put out Seven Year Bitch, 
their first two records. I put out the Gits, their first two records. I put out the first Hammerbox record. Uh, we had a whole compilation called A Far Cry, which was all women in rock of very different stripes. It was never intentional or conscious. It just all seemed very natural to me. 1077 The End, KNDDDJ, Marco Collins. I supported it. I loved hearing Courtney Love on the air. I loved hearing Hammerbox on the air. I loved all of that energy. That female energy was killer and really complimented what was going on. Me and a buddy did a show of all female artists to benefit a woman's shelter. And it was amazing. We had Carrie from Hammerbox. We had Greta from Maxi Bad was, was Greta's band. We had Celine from Seven Year Bitch. We had just badass female artists play this showcase. It was a two night thing. It was great to see women in a very male, what I felt at the time was a male dominated sound. When Breaking Waves returns, the underground meets the music biz machinery, and neither will ever be the same. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whether it was Hammerbox or Mudhoney on stage, The Gits or Gas Huffer, clubs like The Off-Ramp and The Central were overflowing with sweaty bodies flinging themselves around to the sounds of a proud, loud local scene, night after night. By 1991, the perfect storm was finally swelling as the ground-level scene grew into something too big to be contained. Karaoke. It was pretty like, whoa, something's happening here. People are starting to coalesce. People are starting to build audiences. People are starting to get signed. It was faster than you think. Pearl Jam's 10 was released on August 27, 1991, followed by Nevermind and Bad Motorfinger on September 24th. But none were a slam dunk at the record stores right away. For a hot minute, it looked like strike three for the Seattle scene's nationwide profile. There were surely no champagne corks popping at the DGC offices when Nevermind debuted on the album charts at number 144. But Nirvana's Northwestern home turf was where the groundswell started. Kathy Fennessy. All of a sudden they were way bigger than Mudhoney. That was the big grunge band and Nirvana got more popular more quickly. For Nirvana's national breakout, a lot of people say the end was the beginning. Right around its release, KNDD, better known as 1077 The End, became the city's newest rock radio station. 107.7 The And DJ Marco Collins arrived to spread the gospel about the Seattle sound. Well, he was definitely enthusiastic, so it wasn't just a commercial thing. Um, and Marco would often break the rules, and whether he had to, to pay for that in any way, I couldn't tell you, but there were times he was told not to play something, and he would play it my absolute favorite human being in the world, the antithesis of a DJ. 
if I was an instructor at a, at a radio school and I had Marco Collins, I would have failed him. I would bring music to Marco, and he would look at me and he would say, don't ever bring this back. Or he'd listen to some bizarre music and he'd go, you have a hit and I'm going to help you. K-Rock in L.A. And, and the end in Seattle, I mean, they were, they were spinning those bands before anybody else was. And it was like an overnight sensation. I mean, they were, they were doing it because, you know, the, the people who were on the programming side, it was just a labor of love and a passion. And people like Marco, man, give them a world of credit for recognizing this early, giving those bands a platform, and they helped those bands find an audience. So when we came up here, to start the end, we felt like there's all this music. The buzz is huge all over the world. The Seattle sound is a thing, and there's no radio supporting it. I mean, everything changed when the end signed on because we started playing all of those bands in regular rotation. When I picked music to bring in for the music meetings, it wasn't just major label stuff that was handed to us. It was stuff that I found in record stores. It was stuff that I bought from the bands at the shows. I felt like I needed to really pour myself into the scene and find out what was really going on and support the scene. The way you're going to have success is to give the radio station to the community. Every night I had a different independent label come on my show and just play the records. Play whatever you want. Calvin Johnson from Beat Happening, who also ran K Records, took advantage of this opportunity and came on and he's like, yeah, I just have all cassettes, dude. And I'm like, we're a 50,000 watt radio station and he's handing me a cassette to play, but it was taped on a boom box and there was only one channel. So I had to tell the audience, hey, just so you know, there's only music coming out of one side of your speakers, and that's intentional. So turn it up. Most people who were keeping an eye on the industry at the time will tell you that Collins is the man who really broke Nevermind. Well, I mean, obviously, nobody had any idea that Nirvana was going to take off like it did. I remember when we jumped on Smells Like Teen Spirit, there was that moment that there was so much passion and so much energy just coming through the airwaves that we played it numerous times in a row. It took a long time for the rest of the country to, to warm up to Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit. The vibe was so big in Seattle that we knew it was gonna spread, but it was, beyond anything I had ever felt before working in radio. The song was the most requested song, probably longer than any other song in the eight years that I worked at the end. With radio support ramping up, the days were numbered before the big bust out. Soon, what had been an open secret in an isolated city would belong to the world. The thing I always try to explain how organic the whole scene was. It's organic and it's raw and it's real and it's no bullshit. It's not about flash. It's about, it's really about substance over flash. 
Between the supportive stations like The End, the immediate appeal of Smells Like Teen Spirit's Rumble to Roar Dynamics, and the song's growing presence on MTV, Nevermind finally reached its flashpoint by late 91. Like any combustible substance exposed to enough heat, the album exploded all over America. The most dramatic tipping point came when Nevermind hit number one on January 11, 1992, knocking no less iconic a figure than Michael Jackson out of the box. None of us, I don't think, were ultimately surprised when Nevermind hit and hit as hard as it did. Uh, we might have been surprised at how quickly it caught fire, but not the intensity of the fire. It was a lot of fun and a little bit surreal because you'd run into your buddies and like, my God, can you believe that Nevermind is it? It's cracked the top 100. It's on MTV. It's in the top 10. Oh my God, it's number one. It was very, very strange. It felt, you know, it kind of felt like a part of you was exposed to the world that was partially exciting. You were happy for them and it was partially, I don't know if disappointing is the right word, but you, you still wanted to hold them close and keep them to yourself. You know, seeing them on Saturday Night Live was weird. I, I remember being at the Vogue after they were on Saturday Night Live and Chris Novoselic was in the audience and all of a sudden he wasn't just another guy in a band that we went and saw. He was, I mean, he was this pop star. You know, it was unstoppable. I mean, I remember at one point turning on the radio in my car and flipping between the three different rock stations and every single one of them was playing a Nirvana song at the same time. When we had to buckle in for a global ride that I think none of us imagined was the day that Nirvana kicked Michael Jackson off the charts was, oh, holy shit, here we go. Smells Like Teen Spirit is the Godzilla of Seattle music and maybe the Godzilla of music in the 90s and maybe the Godzilla of music in the last three decades. Other than Hendrix, maybe Smells Like Teen Spirit is the song that when somebody hears, they think Seattle. But it was first played at, in an audience at a Seattle show on April 17th, 1991 at the OK Hotel. The song is called Smells Like Teen Spirit. People imagine it being a monster hit right away. It was a big hit, clearly, by October and November. But the first couple months, it was kind of a quiet, slow burner. There's so much emotion in the songwriting that you hear just the first guitar riff before Kurt even starts singing, and you already kind of know what the song's about. And I think that's one reason that the song has been so influential and Nevermind was so big worldwide, because people that didn't speak English could still hear and understand the emotion. Nevermind was the ultimate rising tide of rock, lifting all boats along with it. 10, Bad Motor Finger, and yes, Temple of the Dog were all moderately received 91 releases that got a huge post-Nevermind bump in 92. Around that time, Alice and Chains were working on their career-making second album, Dirt. And for all the inner turmoil and intensity that fueled the record, an unexpected kind of unrest impacted its creation. Alice and Chains guitarist Jerry Cantrell. 
We recorded that in L.A. We set up in the studio on the first day when they were having the Rodney King trial and the whole city erupted. So our first day of dirt, we basically had to leave town and go out to Joshua Tree. And we were watching the verdict and we're like, this is not good, man. Uh, people are going to be so pissed. And, and obviously it was a, a serious injustice there. And uh, it was a battle and we saw some pretty insane things. But that's how that record started. That record, to me, I think it's got a certain edge to it. I think that none of the other ones have. When Dirt's edgy attack went public in September of 92, the explosion of the Seattle scene didn't exactly impede the album's trajectory. Then you look at the, the Billboard charts after that, and the top five positions are local artists. And there were just so, so many, so much, so wide. It's just like the cap came off, and here we go. And then, you know, fucking Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice and everybody blows up and Nirvana's already fucking, you know, through the roof. Well, then there's screaming trees happening. All of a sudden, these guys, these people my age were starting to break. And I was just really kind of exceedingly proud of the whole thing. For Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, the path that started with Green River and ran through Mother Lovebone and Temple of the Dog to Pearl Jam must have felt like it reached some kind of peak when 10 took off. By the time stand-up comics were making fun of the band's name in their sets, there could be no question that bona fide rock star status had been reached. Debbie Livitz. With Pearl Jam, the radio stations wanted so badly to feel like they broke this band, they deserved this band. First time I actually heard Pearl Jam was a little cassette, little cassette that they sent us. And it was... Alive, And I don't remember what the B-side was, but I was up in my garage. I stuck it into my cassette deck, and I listened to it, and I, tears just uncontrollably started pouring down my face. I don't know what it touched. I can't even put a finger on, on the memory, but it was just a combination of every phenomenal rock band that I had ever listened to in my life in that one song. I knew it was something special. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thiel. It's like you're seeing the inside of your head, or this is not to be pretentious, but like seeing the inside of your heart or soul. It's funny, without knowing the narrative of Jeremy, the melody does that. The music captures that disquiet that is present in the narrative. I didn't know the narrative when I first heard the song. I, I often do not go to lyrics first. I go to the, the melody and the riff, and it does that anyway. MTV really got into the band. That's when everything just got huge. And when it exploded, it exploded. Um, everyone thinks they broke Pearl Jam, and you know what? Good for them. When Breaking Waves returns, will Seattle's status as the center of the musical universe kill the soul of the scene? Pearl Jam's first single, Alive, was inspired by Eddie Vedder's real-life experience of finding out the dad he grew up with wasn't his biological father. Vedder's wounded roar of pain and defiance, buoyed by gargantuan riffs, was a story of survival that became an alt-rock anthem. Album hadn't quite gotten out yet. I think we had released Alive. We had released it to metal and college radio. 
I don't think the label really knew what to do with it. My label didn't really think it was going to be alive. But that's the magic of what we do. We really don't know. Ultimately, it's the consumer. It's the listener. It took a long time for the tipping point to happen in record company terms. It took months. Here, locally, as soon as the song got on the radio, it really had a life of its own. But it just took a while for the rest of the country, I think, to catch up. It was a KISW in Seattle. The day that the album was released, KNDD 107.7 The End, it was their first day on the air. So they had no idea what Pearl Jam was about. But KISW had such an incredible infrastructure that their DJs, Damon Stewart, Kathy Faulkner, the, uh, the night DJ and music director, they knew all these guys. They were primed. And that's the gift that we had. We had that, that hometown, music-based swell that was so authentic and so real. The first two records that were handed to me were Nirvana's Nevermind and Pearl Jam's 10. I never really knew what our influence was on Pearl Jam until I talked to McCready years later. And he said that the end was instrumental because other radio stations followed us. Whoever broke alive, Pearl Jam became part of the new Seattle rock pantheon, and their pal Soundgarden were blasting their way above ground too. Bad Motorfinger wasn't the biggest album they'd ever have, but it was a milestone that moved them into the same club as Nirvana and company. Kim Thile. With Bad Motorfinger, that was the first album where we had to address ourselves as the sole audience. We don't know how our fans or friends are going to take this. We have a new bass player. We have new material. Really, it's a change in the band lineup and then consequent change in the chemistry. And it changes a lot of the dynamic. We're still the same band. We still have a basic foundation and vision. We have these new elements coming, but they all fit within with, with who we are and what we're about, you know, musically. My odd Soundgarden memory was at Bad Motor Finger tour. There's a song on there, Searching With My Good Eye Closed, and they, they pulled their friend, our friend, and fellow KISW DJ Damon Stewart does the spoken word portion at the beginning. So on the Bad Motor Finger tour, anytime we would see them in concert, um, we would hear Damon's voice start the show, and that was always special for us. But there was still more unfinished business to be settled for the sleepers of 1991. Sometime in the first year, A.N., after Nevermind, somebody at A&M seemingly had a forehead-smacking moment where they realized that the Temple of the Dog album they'd left smoldering in their catalog for a year featured what was now a red-hot supergroup. Next thing you knew, the video for Hunger Strike, featuring a reflective-looking Eddie Vedder, trading vocals with Chris Cornell at Seattle's Discovery Park, was everywhere. Most of the people who saw it never heard of Andrew Wood and had no idea about Temple of the Dog's backstory. But they knew that this moody, disconsolate song was part of something important that was in the air at that very moment. I'm pretty sure it's Eddie Vedder's very first released material. You know, it predates the Pearl Jam album. And uh, of course, the video is a duet between Eddie and Chris. Uh, no one thought the record would be as big as it was. Uh, I think I wrote some liners to a re-release, Temple of the Dog. And, you know, the most remarkable thing about that album is that it 
really starts selling a year after it's released. So it was not a hit initially. That, Like much of the story of Seattle, people remembered the dates wrong. While the first wave bands of the Seattle Invasion made their major label triumphs and ascended to rock star status, back home, the ground-level scene was still grinding away. In retrospect, Jack and Dino was the line between the Seattle underground and grunge-gone mainstream. The Skinyard guitarist was the go-to producer and engineer whose work was all over the sub-pop and CZ catalogs. In the late 80s, he helped Green River, Mudhoney, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, and Nirvana capture what was raw and real about their sound. When Seattle's first wave warriors busted through the gates to stardom, it was with more polished producers. But for the rest, Indino's unvarnished, in-your-face approach remained in demand. Kathy Fennessy. The whole scene did become a little more homogenous as the major labels stepped in and as artists were working with producers like Scott Litt and people like that, you know, where it got away from the Jack and Dino and some of those early producers who really wanted those loud, grungy, distorted sounds. He didn't get in the way of any sounds or like true identity of the band. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. That's artistry there to be able to capture a band and not try to produce them and not try to change parts of the song. Like seeing his head through the glass and kind of him looking over his glasses at you, you knew, you know, like, okay, I think that was a good take. But I think he probably had a, a ton to do with capturing the true sounds of the scene. I think Jack and Nina's role is very, very critical. The sort of consistency of brand with Sub Pop as a label, you know, Jack and Dino is certainly a very important part of that whole brand too, because the majority of those early records were all engineered by Jack. He had a particular style and approach to how he would record and mix bands uh, that were really perfectly tailored for these kinds of bands. You know, rock is very much part of his DNA. So there's a sound to those records. They just are heavier and they're just fuller. They sound like a closer representation of what these bands may sound like live. You know, they're not as squeaky clean and polished. And that's a good thing because any of those bands being too overly produced typically just don't work right. But even if the sound that put Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden over the top were more streamlined than what they started with, they were still an abrupt about-face from what was dominating rock radio and MTV up until then. One of the side effects of the Seattle explosion was that it basically blew what was widely known as hair metal off the map. Seattle rap legend Sir Mix-a-Lot. I hated rock and roll in the 80s. Every damn song had a video with a blonde girl with red lipstick and a cherry in her mouth. It's like, ah, come on, Warrant, Warrant, one, two, three, four, five. It was just, oh my God. But grunge was something that we could touch because it felt like just poor kids doing music. Hair metal and the, and the whole Sunset Strip scene, like that kind of band, that kind of carefully manicured and you know carefully marketed music aesthetic, we were like, you know, fuck that. It was a 180, man. We left like the hair band era. We were talking about not just great new bands from Seattle, but a new genre. And isn't that what we're always trying to do is find out what's going to be next? It was kind of like the line in the sand had been drawn. So all these bands, we'll call them hair bands or 80s bands, whatever you want to call them. Once the Pearl Jam record came out, 
Soundgarden was happening, the Alice record was out, and then Nirvana, of course, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. It was like all of that stuff just got flushed down the toilet. But according to Karen Mason Blair, who had been part of Alice in Chains' inner circle from the start, it wasn't always so cut and dried. In her photo book, The Flannel Years, you can see moments her camera captured in 1991, when Poison's Brett Michaels and Alice guitarist Jerry Cantrell were happily rocking out together on stage. You know, Alice in Chains started as a more of a glam band, and they loved the 80s bands. Alice in Chains loved that they got to perform with Poison. I guess there was an opening band that was scheduled to play, and they got, I don't know, something, they were sick or something. So then they asked Alice in Chains at the last minute to be the opening band for Poison in Seattle, which they said, oh, heck yeah. So they, you know, so they opened for them. And then as an encore, they all came on and sang Kiss, you know, I want to rock and roll all night. And so that's why I have that picture where they're both playing. And yeah, um, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe we played with Poison. Grunge kind of canceled <laughs> the 80s bands and the, the hair bands and whatever. They were all singing like girls, girls, girls and all this stuff. And then here comes grunge and there's a lot of honesty. That kind of resonated with me more. I don't know. I mean, like, we're not all cruising the Hollywood Strip. All the industry really needed to know was that eyeliner was out and flannel was in. Once Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains stole the spotlight, Seattle became the site of a major label feeding frenzy. We all kind of resented it because suddenly we were like a freak show. Like everybody wanted a piece of us. You know, everybody wanted their Seattle story. Every record label wanted to sign a Seattle band. And it got to the point of just, just such utter desperation in a way. A&R people were getting marching orders to sign a band from Seattle. It didn't matter what the band may or may not sound like. You just had to have somebody on your roster. I feel like it came in waves. I feel like Soundgarden and Nirvana and everybody got signed, like there was a first wave. Then there was like second wave of like Hammerbox and you know some other bands. And then there was like a third wave when it was starting to really peter out. You know, there was like the last chance A&R people going, hey, maybe, you know, like still trying to like suck anything else out of this moment. I mean, we hired Damon Stewart from KISW, Damon Stewart, who was buddies and best friends with all of these bands. We hired him as an A&R rep to try and sign local bands. And that's what you noticed. You just noticed that people from all over, all over the industry were coming in trying to sign their next band. There's like the trajectory, right? Like of like, oh wow, this is exciting. Oh wow, what is this? It's a whole adventure. Then it starts to get gross. <laughs> then you start to realize that, you know, vampires are arriving. Suddenly, Seattleites didn't have their scene to themselves anymore. The bands they used to only read about in The Rocket and hear only on KCMU or late nights on KISW were now Rolling Stone cover boys and MTV darlings. For better or worse, Seattle was the center of the musical universe. Breaking Waves, Seattle. Next, after the Seattle scene rides the wave to the top, who will survive the crash that follows? You have been listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. Breaking Waves was produced for Odyssey by Osiris Media. 
For Odyssey, the executive producers of Breaking Waves are Tim Murphy and Corey Podolsky. The creative directors are Dave Richards, Leslie Scott, and Ryan Castle. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are RJB, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. The show was produced by Brian Brinkman and written by Jim Allen. Edit and mixed by Brad Stratton and narration by Ryan Castle. To find more great content like Breaking Waves, Seattle, please download the Odyssey app on your mobile device or visit Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com.